Welcome to the podcast that lightens the tension when things sort of get hard. That's what C said, the counterintuitive podcast featuring interviews with leaders and doers who have helped to make our world a better place through their actions and especially through marketing, communications, and embracing change. Here's our host, Lee Walkner. Our guest today is my friend, Dan Schnurr. Dan Schnurr is a professor at the University of California, Berkeley's Institute of Governmental Studies, Pepperdine University's Graduate School of Public Policy, and the University of Southern California's Annenberg School of Communications, where he teaches courses in politics, communications, and leadership. His bio is very long, so you're going to get just a snippet of it here for me. He's the founder of the USC LA Times statewide political poll, which is very influential, and currently hosts a weekly webinar for the LA World Affairs Council Town Hall called Politics in the Time of Coronavirus. Previously, Dan worked on four presidential and three gubernatorial campaigns as one of California's leading political strategists. He served as the National Director of Communications for the 2000 presidential campaign of U.S. Senator John McCain and was the chief media spokesman for California Governor Pete Wilson. Dan has been an advisor to the William and Melinda Gates Foundation, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, the Broad Education Foundation, the Pew Charitable Trusts, the James Irvine Foundation, the Stewart Foundation on a variety of political reform, K-12 education and college and workforce preparedness efforts. Um, I know he's an active community volunteer, lots of board service um, and lots of uh, consulting and, uh, and this, I think, is essential given our discussion. He's a member of the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs, Senior Fellows Program, where he mentors UCLA graduate students and advises them on their academic and professional goals and many, many appearances um, on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, National Public Radio, and every newspaper I read, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, LA Times, New York Times, et cetera, et cetera. Dan, nice to see you. Great to see you, Lee. Thank you for wasting half of our time with that. I'm excited to <laughs> talk about something more interesting for whatever time we have left. Uh, well, you know, stop doing so much. I, I mean, the world doesn't need any help, so just stop that. <laughs> okay. Um, <That's> interesting. <laughs> so, uh, boy, there's a lot I want to talk to you about, and um, and 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 I want to start with you know something interesting happened yesterday. I, I don't know if you followed this in the news, but. Um, a former president was uh, actually arraigned yesterday. Really? Which one? <laughs> and uh, it was quite the news story. And um, uh, you may be shocked to learn that di- people have differing viewpoints on this. And so I, I thought I'd start by talking about the growing polarization of politics. Um, you know, I, I meet people all across the country who I think are good people. And I have friends who are really good people. And uh, you'll be shocked to learn that they don't all agree with me about everything. Um, and, and so now we have these kind of tribal camps of sorts with diametrically opposed viewpoints. And, and it's a real dynamic. And do you see the same trend I see? And, and why is that happening? Why, why, why do we have these kind of like um, armed camps, so to speak? Well, I, I certainly do agree with you, Lee. Um, everyone else might not agree with you on everything, but I think you and I have managed to convince each other of most things over, over the years. Uh, you know, I assign, uh, there are two books in particular that I assign to my classes at all three universities uh, that I'll, I'll recommend on this topic. One is called Why We're Polarized by Ezra Klein, the New York Times columnist. And the other is simply called Them by Ben Sass the former Republican senator and president of the University of Florida. So liberal journalist, conservative politician slash academic. And the joke in class is that they're the same book, just written from opposite ends of the spectrum. And I think they talk about this in a really, really smart way. Um, Klein asserts right away, he said, look, we are a tribal species. And we have been ever since prehistoric days. We naturally band together. And it's now chemically and biologically hardwired into us because it's something that's existed for so many millennia. But what they both argue, um, and, and, and Sass talks about this in a, uh, in a much different way than Klein, but in a very compelling way as well, said one of the reasons that's become so intense in recent years is that as our society has become more atomized um, and more disconnected, 
more and more of us rely more and more heavily on our political affiliation for our self-identity. Lee, I know that you've read the famous uh, book, Bowling Alone, by Robert Putnam of Harvard University, and I'm guessing that most of your audience has too. Um, what, what Sass argues is that once you take away those social connectors, there's much, much less left. And in other words, in a previous era, I might have belonged to a church or a synagogue. I might have belonged to a chamber of commerce or a labor organization. I might have been part of a PTA. I might have been part of a bowling league. And oh, by the way, I was also a Democrat or Republican. Now, I don't go to religious services. Um, I'm not a member of these community organizations. I do bowl alone. And so all that's left is that R or D after my name. And I cling to it much more tightly than ever before. And so when it comes time to compromise, as good politicians have done since, you know, since time immemorial, it becomes a lot harder to compromise when the stakes are not just tax policy or healthcare policy, but my very identity. Now, we can also talk about redistricting and gerrymandering. We can talk about polarized media. We can talk about how we as a species now tend to self-select where we live in more geographically, ideologically isolated areas. But I go back to Klein and Sass's central point that one, we're a tribal species. And a lot of the tribes that we once identified ourselves as part of aren't there anymore. So our political affiliations end up becoming a much stronger part of who we are. We're much that much more reluctant to give them up. I, I actually, so that's fascinating to me. I actually wonder if there's an additional dynamic. And that is that, um, that we can't make sense of great overwhelming amounts of data. And so we need to confine things to story points. And, and I'll give you a horrific example. Um, the refugee crisis around the world is, uh, is terrible, right? I mean, if you really drilled into the lives of, of people who've lost their homes, their places of being because of war, disease, poverty, et cetera, it's awful. But I, I can't particularize any of them. But when the little boy washed up on the shore, drowned at, at age three a few years ago, I can't get that image out of my head. And that became a global media sensation. And it's because my brain can recognize and identify that and empathize. Um, and, and so right now what happens is, oh, he's a red or she's a blue and I like the red or I don't like the blue or whatever the heck it is, right? And, and so it's easier to sort like a sorting hat, but what it really, the other thing, the other impact of that is, um, it, it, uh, blows up all the bridges between people in the country. And it certainly leaves the purple people out the people who don't want to drink Coke or Pepsi and say, I don't want either of these. I, I want, I want to drink water. There's no, there's no option for them electorally. I, I think that's a very smart analysis and I think it's a natural compliment what we were talking about. An independent, of course, definitionally, is independent. They're not part of a tribe. And uh, I am an independent, or as we're known here in California, no party preference. No. And so a couple of things happen. One, the pull for us to join one tribe or the other becomes stronger for all the reasons we were talking about earlier. But second, what happens, and I think this is what you're getting at, Lee, and it's a really smart point, is because these two tribes the red and the blue are energized. They feel the ability with some justification to become more ideologically intense yeah. and more ideologically extreme and more ideologically uniform. And so they move further and further away from each other. Uh, there is no such thing, uh, Joe Manchin notwithstanding, as mm -hmm. a centrist Southern Democrat. Um, there's no such thing, Susan Collins notwithstanding, as a moderate Northeastern Republican. And the fact that we can cite in five seconds the mm -hmm. remainders of were once very much larger caucuses in the United States Congress, to me, is a very logical extension of what happens is if the parties move further and further from midfield, they leave more and more people behind. And, and it just doesn't feel great to have discussions and policies and laws that are enacted that in a way leave half of the people behind. Um, so 
So for us as a nation, how bad is the impact of polarization? It's, it's, it's a serious challenge. And in, I, I don't want to look at the past through rose-colored glasses, which is always mm-hmm. tempting. Yeah. You know, we've been partisan and polarized from the very beginning, as in politics long before there was a United States of America. But I think what's changely is in years past, at a time of crisis, those very bitter partisan rivals were able to even temporarily, fleetingly, put aside their differences when circumstances demanded it. And I'm not you know, going back to the founding fathers. I can talk to my students about Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill working mm-hmm. together to study Social Security. I can talk to them about Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich working together to balance the budget, and they don't doubt me. Um, but I might as well be telling them about the eight-track tape player with a butter churn. <laughs> it's just an interesting historical artifact that has no relevance today, and it is much harder to put aside those differences, but it's not unheard of. Whether you happen to be an R or a D, give Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell some credit because they got an awful lot done last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, just one other thing I'd add to this, and we can dig into this deeper if you'd likely, is one other book that you and I have talked about a lot in the past um, is the book Soul of America, um, uh, which is a, a, a tremendous look back at American history. <laughs> Excuse me. And it reminds us that we have had bitter divisions and hatreds dividing us in this country since before we were a country. And the wonderful thing about the book is it reminds us that because these divisions, we're not in the unique time period, and that we've been able to get past these divisions in the past. But to me, what's most telling about the book Before I picked it up, I thought to myself, okay, I get it. Good triumphs over evil. Luke beats Darth. You know, that's the circle of life, right? And so I expected a really feel-good book about how King and Lincoln and others brought us together magically at different times. Um, And the really wonderful thing about uh, about the book is it doesn't do that. Because with every MLK, with every Lincoln... There are much more improbable leaders who brought us together. And I'll give you just one example, and then I'll shut up. Hmm? Uh, about a century ago, um, in the immediate aftermath of World War I, um, the highest grossing movie in the country was Birth of a Nation. Mm-hmm. Um, there were, at that time, no fewer than 75 publicly declared members of the Ku Klux Klan serving in the United States Congress. In Congress. Mm-hmm. And Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge both took steps, which we don't need to get into here, not to magically make these divisions go away, but to ease the tensions and begin to heal the gap. And what FBR accomplished um, was, not, was an outgrowth of those earlier efforts. So to me, the, the lesson I learned, and again, I'd, I'd, I'd really recommend the book. It's, it's tremendous uh, for anyone in, in, in your audience. In fact, watch this. Wow. Is it pop on pop? What book are you getting here? Green Eggs and Ham. The Soul of ah. America by Misha. <laughs> yeah. um, I would strongly recommend the book because it reminds us that for every Lincoln, for every king, there are scores and scores of improbable heroes not just disgraced or overlooked former presidents, but average normal people who decide I can't make Congress work together, but I can be part of a book club in which everyone doesn't yeah. agree on everything. Yeah. Anyway, um, long rant. I apologize. I'll tighten it up. Uh, uh, well, thank you for refuting the pernicious notion of the good old days. Um, <laughs> I'm an ardent foe of the good old days because, um, you know, last time I looked around, we don't have so many lynchings anymore, no Black Plague, no World War One, no Great Depression, uh, and we have penicillin and some other things. So whenever people go on a tear about the good old days, I just want to scream. So thank you for that. Um, so, uh, you know, I work in marketing, and and so I'm, I, I'm always interested in affecting change, and, and that's really – you're in a different – 
area of the spectrum on affecting change, but the same sorts of goals. You're trying to affect positive change in your in your work with um, with today's youth, the tomorrow's leaders, um, and and large civic organizations trying to affect change. So so that so let me ask you this: When you're an elected official, how it how can you get anything done when your elected coworkers in the other party think you're a villain? Well, this uh, this is one of the biggest dynamics that's changed over the last generation, and that as not only um, let me back up a step. So, part of this is a result of the way our congressional and legislative districts are drawn, mm-hmm. and anybody who's smart enough to draw to you know, to to clue into a Lee Wachner podcast doesn't need me to tell them about gerrymandering, um, but. I think there's a broader dynamic at work here because, of course, you can't gerrymander a state. And the United States Senate is just as polarized as, as the House these days. Mm-hmm. We're the most mobile society in the history of the planet Earth. And when people relocate, they do so for a couple of reasons. One, they do also out of economic necessity, of course. But more and more, as mobility increases, we relocate to live in communities with people like us. Mm-hmm. And for most of human history, This gets back to your point about the good old days. Most humans defined people like us as people who look like me or talk like me. So we're making progress on that front. But at the same time, more and more of us define the phrase people like me, not as someone who looks like me, but as someone who thinks like me. And so we tend to live in communities where people's worldviews and ideologies and increasingly their partisan political behavior is similar to ours. There's nothing evil like about that. People want to live in communities with people like them, but it means we tend to be much more uniform in our politics. So we send representatives to office, not who need to balance competing interests, uh, but who represent a very ardent conservatism or, or liberalism. And then we get mad when they don't compromise with people on the other side. Mm-hmm. So if you know, Lee, as a member of the state legislature, as a member of Congress, that whether it's because of gerrymandering or whether it's because of this geographic self-selection, that you are never going to face a competitive general election re-election campaign for as long as you want to serve. The only way you can ever leave, lose that cushy seat, Representative Wachner, is to allow someone to outflank you on the right or on the left. Mm-hmm. So the disincentive for compromise becomes a really, really strong one. And the only way to pull it off, and again, this is where I give Biden and McConnell significant credit, is knowing that there's safety in numbers. And so to be able to say to your most ardent constituents, I know you don't like that I worked with the other side, but look at all the other people in our party that did too. And look what we accomplished. That's good for you. Yeah. It may not be quite as cathartic, but there's actually something productive that comes out of it. So we're also talking here a little bit about um, the impact of social media, which is going to come back up in this discussion in a minute. So I remember 20, 25 years ago going to, um, a whole bunch of conferences and, and speeches around the country where people talked about, um, well, we used to get a daily newspaper and you would read the newspaper and you're reading it in the format that they've selected. And, and I, my background is as a newspaper man, you may recall, uh, reporter and editor. And then, um, and now what it is, is you kind of select the news you want. You set up um, triggers. And so I had some Google alerts set you also go on social media and you like certain pages and not other pages. And so you are pre-selecting the news you want and you're leaving out the other things. Um, so you've kind of pre-selected your worldview. Once you, once you get an inkling of which tribe you belong to, you've silenced the other tribe. And what happens is your tribe tells you the, the seemingly perfidious things the other people are doing to agitate you, to fundraise you and activate you, which does not um, actually present uh, a good view of those two tribes working together any better in the future. Um, so there's a, definitely a social media component, and certainly both the blues and the reds are using it for fundraising and for and for building their numbers and all these other things. And boy, if it's your team, you want them to do that, right? But but is there 
Is there any hope for bringing people together better when it's easier to use this digital sorting hat and say, well, these are blue and I like these, these are red, I like the, or I don't like the other. Is there, is there any hope for this? I think there is. Uh, but the movement in that direction is not going to come from Washington or Sacramento or another state capital or from a city hall. It has to come from people. Your instinct is exactly rightly. Precious few of our elected officials are going to say, well, listen, I want you to spend more time reading and thinking about what the other side says. <laughs> it's not going to happen. But <laughs> there's nothing that prevents you or me or anyone else from doing it, except, of course, for human nature. Yeah. I mean, human nature means I want to spend time with the smartest people in the world. Who are the smartest people in the world? Well, they're the people who agree with me, of course. <laughs> and whether I find them on Fox or on MSNBC, either way, I can very quickly, to your point, not just on cable, but even more so on digital and social media, I can build myself an ideological igloo mm. in which I am never challenged. I'm never disagreed with. I merely have my opinions reinforced. And even better, I'm congratulated for having such smart opinions. The good news is there's a really easy way out of that, and that's your thumb mm -hmm. or your index finger. Mm -hmm. the, the last assignment I give my students every semester, and I'm not trying to turn them all into squish moderates, just to be clear. Um, <laughs> I want them to be principled conservatives and principled progressives. I said at the end of every semester, I tell them, here's the last assignment I'm going to give you. And it's the most important assignment I've given you all semester long, but I can't grade it. I said, I want every principled conservative in this class to watch Rachel Maddow once a week. And I want every principled progressive in this class to read George Will or Brett Stevens or Ross Douthat once a week. I'm not trying to change your mind. I'm not trying to open it. I'm just trying to remind you that there's really smart people over on the other side. And if you're willing to expose yourself to them every once in a while, it doesn't make you any less of a partisan. But maybe it does help you remember that there is room for common ground and compromise. And that common ground and compromise might not come with Marjorie Taylor Greene or Ilhan Omar. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of smart people over there, too, if you're willing to, uh, if, if you're willing to uh, intellectually expose yourself to them. And, of course, Lee, the great irony of your point is this thing not only allows me to isolate myself ideologically – it also makes it much easier for me to reach out and listen to and read other people. I don't know about you growing up, but when I was growing up, the Milwaukee Journal was about all I had. And if they didn't run a particular point of view, no. I'd never know it. Um, now you have every opinion in the world in your pocket, um, which is a little bit weird way of saying it. it'll come up with a better way of I'll come up with a better way for the next podcast. But yeah. All it takes is us, and I know it sounds a little kumbaya-ish, but to me, if you are in a book club or some kind of gathering with people, even with whom you agree on everything, remind each other, say, hey, watch that show, read that column, or, God forbid, maybe invite someone to join us who doesn't agree with us. They're not a crazed lunatic on the other side. Uh, ben Sass calls it nutpicking. He says it's really easy to pick the nuttiest person over there no. and use them as an excuse not to work together. But there's smart people over there, too. Well, I, I want to thank you for the term squish moderate. I, I'm ordering a T-shirt now so that I, I can proudly <laughs> display that. Um, and you did not mention my favorite squish moderate, who is David Brooks, who I uh, and I, although I like Brett Stevens as well. And it's interesting that I now view both of them as moderates um, because of where the, the spectrum has moved. Um, so I came of age during Watergate, and I remember lying on the floor uh, with my tape recorder recording Nixon's resignation speech. <laughs> I, I was one of those kids um, because I knew it would be important, and, um, but my friends didn't seem to care. And what are the attitudes of young people today toward politics and government? Well, the good news for you, Lee, is there are still people like you. Um, <laughs> that's good news. Um, I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> I think so. Personally, um, I'll let your audience decide for, for themselves. Yeah. Um, but what's really interesting is they channel 
their interest and their concerns and their involvement in a somewhat different direction than you and my generation did. So these generations, these millennials and Gen Z, they vote in smaller numbers than any other generation oh. in America today or in recent American history. Um, just like Xers and boomers did when, when we were younger. Mm-hmm. But what I will tell you is they also, they volunteer their time back into their community in greater numbers than any other generation. And so what's happened over the course of the last generation and a half, if you will, is they're still civic, deeply civically minded, but fewer and fewer of them see traditional politics and government as the way to get the solutions they want. Um, I still send students to Washington and to Sacramento and to City Hall, but a lot fewer than I used to, but a lot more of them go to work for nonprofits or community organizations because they think that's where the change is going to happen. You you know, you referenced a little bit ago about now you're not tied to whatever's in the daily newspaper. And it, uh, I, (laughs) I love the internet. I love the internet. I, I work in the internet. I think at this point, everybody works in the internet pretty, even if you're a construction worker, you're working in the internet. Um, and I grew up in a very rural area. I had no connection to anybody anywhere. Uh, I used to write letters and get letters back. That's crazy. And um, I would make friends by getting letters published in comic books. And thank you, Marvel and DC. They would print the address and then you would get letters back. Hey, I live in Southern New Jersey too. We should meet. And, and so the internet has made all, all these different sorts of things more possible. And you look at the, um, you look at the, oh God, the kids who survived school shootings who then band together uh, to try to get um, more uh, gun restrictions in place. And they couldn't do that without the internet, not really. So um, in your teaching and mentoring of working with young people, um, what do you tell them about about how to affect political change, about how to work on the issues that really activate them? Well, and, and this is the challenging part for an, an old guy like me, is I've spent a lot of time over the years trying to convince them that while I admire their community-based work and their volunteer work, that if they want to make change happen yeah, on a broad scale, they need to step inside the gates. And I tell them the, the the famous story about young Barack Obama, the community organizer, yeah. showing up at the city council meeting to advocate for his preferred candidate to replace Mayor Harold Washington. Mm-hmm. And you remember this, his disappointment. He said, I realized <laughs> when I got there, it was too late. The decision had already been made behind closed doors. Yeah. And I vowed to get inside those doors. And I tell them, I want you to get inside those doors. I said, look, volunteering is noble but you can only clean up so many parks. And more and more what these students will tell me is, hey, at the end of the day, I've got a clean park. Hmm. What have you got? Yeah. And so yeah. they're willing to make the change on a, on a more specific level. So I still do work very hard to convince them that the traditional political process can be a complement, not a substitute for the community-based activity. And I'm pleased and I'm proud that a lot of them have gone on to do that kind of work in Washington and Sacramento and other state capitals and around the country. But an increasing number of them, um, they do decide to make that difference at a nonprofit or an NGO or a community organization. And I don't get nearly as agitated as I used to when they decide that that's the best way of making a difference. What I've now come to believe in a way that I didn't when you and I were growing up, Lee, is I now tell them there's two ways to make change. You can make change wide and you can make change deep. Hmm. And if you go to Washington or Sacramento or you decide to work on policy and, or advocate, you can affect millions of lives. That's wide, but you don't see that change happening. So I certainly understand the visceral payoff for them of maybe affecting a smaller number of lives, but in a more deep, in a deeper and a more profound way. So I'm not quite as judgmental as I used to be. What's the Dylan line? I was so much older then. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so you know, some years ago, uh, I have a number of friends who are jaded about the uh, ability to accomplish anything, which I, I find infuriating. I, I mean, once you've given into cynicism, which is easy, then you're not doing anything. Um, so I, I, uh, 
I abhor the cynics <laughs> and I do my best to refute them. So um, I, I had a friend opining about how it, you know, it's all rigged and you can't do anything. And I said, well, tell me something that seems wrong. Tell me something that bugs you. And uh, there was a little California um, tax law that was um, uh, uh, penalizing small business in a certain way that seemed unfair. And I said, okay, thanks. And I turned it over to a state legislator who agreed with me. And that was Assemblyman Mike Gatto, a great guy. And Gatto, uh, Gatto wrote that, got it into law. And I went back to my friend Doug and I go, hey, you just got a law passed. <laughs> and he still talks about it. He's like, wow, that, so uh, the system can work. And I go, yeah, the system can work. The system can work. The system can work. And it doesn't work as much as it once that did, but it works more frequently than most people assume. There's a terrific uh, uh, column in the, weekend, in the Washington Post over the weekend uh, by a writer by the name of Amanda Ripley, uh, who's very, very good. And she wrote about, the, not in a critical way, just a reflective way, about how the news media's natural tendency is to seek out bad news. Yeah, sure. And look, we as a, as a species tend to respond more to threats than to promises, mm-hmm. and to sticks than to, than to carrots. And the media reflects that. They very rarely run stories saying, oh, look at all those planes that landed safely at LAX yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, right. and she points out, which I hadn't thought about, which I thought was a great point, is she says, and when the media does feel an obligation to sort of balance the scale, we get stories about animals, not about people. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, in, in the media, it's very much uh, outside every silver lining, there's a dark cloud. And, right. and you, <laughs> you see that every day. And, and, and it, it doesn't do anyone any good to simply beat up on the media. And that's not my intent. And it wasn't Ripley's either. It's just to recognize that they play a certain role in our lives. And if we over rely on it, yeah. we're going to become overly suspicious and, uh, and overly pessimistic. I'm like you. I call myself a born again ingenue. I started out as an optimist. I became very cynical. And now mm-hmm. I've come all the way full yeah. circle around to being an optimist again. And you know, the worst part of it is, and I think this is your point for your friend, is you just have to look a little bit harder. But in other aspects of our life, we're willing to work a little bit harder to find the good, right? Yeah. You know, so I, I, wanna, I, I wanna pick up something you said a couple minutes ago before I lose track of it. You mentioned Obama, um, who uh, we could talk about for hours probably, but, the, but uh, you mentioned when he went to make the case for the mayor and, and realized it was too late, which is interesting. I, I actually attribute his very successful political career to having become the head of the law review um, in school because, you know, he was the compromise candidate, much as Lincoln was the compromise candidate uh, for the Republican nomination. And, and Obama won because the conservatives at the law review voted for him because he would actually listen to them. And all, all they wanted was a conversation so they could be heard. And so he got the he, he did not get the extreme lefts who were studying law, right, on the law review, but he got the moderates and the conservatives, and he got just enough to become head of the law review, which really, really kind of launched him. And so there's a lesson there for us. Sometimes people just want to be heard. I, I think that's exactly right. And you don't have to be the editor of a law review to know that. I think most human beings in their lives outside of politics, most good people, are willing to give other people a chance to be heard. You know this when you have little kids at home. They might not have anything important to say at the moment, (laughs) but it's important (laughs) to them that they have a chance to say it. And you learn Uh, that it's good for them to have the chance to express themselves. The rest of us, we grew up in some ways, but maybe not in that way. Um, I'm sure you've seen this when you um, host a community forum, and I've had Mm -hmm. a wonderful time Lee in, in Burbank at the various forums in which in which you're involved is people get up to at the end of the presentation to ask a question and after a couple of minutes you realize that there was no question coming anywhere yeah. Yeah. in the immediate future and I always say hey look you don't have to ask a question if you want to make a statement that's fine just put a question mark at the end and we'll all pretend <laughs> but well you're almost alone me, in that others don't like that <laughs> but to me it's I, but it's the same point that you made about Obama. Mm-hmm. Yep. If someone is willing to listen to me talk for 20 or 30 minutes and then has a point that they want to make that doesn't end in a question, 
Well, if it makes them feel better to be heard. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. If it leads to a level of cohesion and mutual understanding, that can pay some benefit going forward. I can say with confidence, I will never, ever, ever be the editor of the Harvard Law Review. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that I can't listen to other people. Yeah. Uh, We're going to take a short break here for a special announcement, and then we'll be back with Dan Schnurr to talk about lessons learned, the heroes and villains, the case for optimism, and more fun stuff about our peculiar political times. So we'll be right back. Hi, this is Jacqueline with Counterintuity. Being compliant with the Americans with Disabilities Act on your website is the right thing to do so that everyone can visit and use your website. But did you know that it's also a legal requirement? By ensuring your website meets ADA compliance standards, you make it more accessible to people with disabilities, improving their user experience and expanding your audience. And by complying with ADA regulations, you can avoid legal issues and protect your organization from expensive lawsuits. Check out the Counterintuity blog for more on this and other important website compliance topics. Or give us a call. We're always happy to help. So, Dan, uh, one of the things we're, we're talking about, for the most part, is about change, of course. And, and marketing is about change. Marketing is about revealing what's going on. And, and as we know, we live in a time of constant change and faster change. And so you and I uh, still read daily newspapers. We're those people. Um, but there are zillions more people over on TikTok and Instagram and, and so forth. What's the changing role of media in politics? We began to touch on that a little bit earlier, but uh, I'm glad we have a chance to to dig deeper on it. I think what happens more and more, uh, and you alluded to this earlier, Lee, is while there's still a a mainstream legacy news media, albeit a shrunken presence, um, it's been augmented and often overshadowed uh, by an advocacy news media on both sides. Advocacy news media is probably even giving them a little bit too much credit. We'll just call it advocacy media as opposed to legacy news media. And I I liken it. I've got no problem with that advocacy media on either side. I think it's helpful to understand what people who have stronger opinions than I do, what they're thinking. Um, But I look at it as dessert. In other words, if I have chocolate cake after dinner, I'm a happy guy, but I've also had a nutritious meal. If I have chocolate cake instead of that dinner, um, I'm on a temporary sugar high, and I'm probably not doing all that much for my overall health. So to me, going straight to the advocacy media is the equivalent of going straight to the chocolate cake. And if you're willing to have a more balanced meal of legacy media first, then you've earned the dessert. But when you replace it, I think that's when you get into trouble. And more and more, that's what's happening for all the reasons we were talking about earlier. Well, so on Facebook, as an example, it's easy for me to find my tribe. And then um, when I connect with friends I haven't seen in a while, other friends will then sometimes privately message me, hey, your friend Jim seems like a Trump supporter. What's he doing there? And I'm like, well, he's my friend. Um, and, and that doesn't seem to be a good response um, because we should be we should be completely isolated and and by the way, reject our family members who don't agree with us politically seems to be the thought here as opposed to ever having a conversation winning people over and and social media is instantaneous. And I can tell you if you are old and slow, you commit four seconds to making an impression via Google. And I tell clients this all the time, clients in our generation, and they're horrified. And I go, you know, your, your thing has to be quicker. It has to be scannable. People need to make an impression immediately. And, and if you're not giving that impression that quickly, statistically, here's the rate at which you're losing them, which is horrific. And that applies for social media as well, of course. So I, I don't know what to do about that, except um, potentially grab people to get them into your lane and then make the case while they're in there. I think that's right. And by the way, I will say as an aside, Lee, in addition to Facebook, uh, the kids today uh, use something called Instagram and even called TikTok. And mm-hmm. they're worth checking out from, from time those. to time. Come on. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But 
what I would say now that I've been snide is I'll get back to I'll get back to being serious. It's not just yeah, yeah, that yeah, yeah. it's easier happens to be easier for you. Uh, these social media platforms are very very diligent and very very dedicated to making sure that you're presented with input that reflects your existing beliefs. In other words, mm-hmm. if you like puppy videos, mm-hmm. and Lee, I think you can cop to it. We're you know we're friends here. Okay, um, they I, I know I to do. send yeah. you a steady diet of puppy videos because that's going to keep you on their social media platform longer. If they start sending you kitty videos, you're going to log off. So they keep sending you what you want, yeah. and if it's puppies versus yeah. kittens, no big deal. But if it's ideologically charged language and video and you keep getting a steady diet of only the most conservative or the most liberal of information and opinion reinforcing what you already believe, that intensifies and exaggerates our natural tendencies to a really unhealthy degree. Now, I don't think the people who run Meta and who run Facebook are evil, but they're business people. And they know that they make more money from keeping you on their site. So by sending you a a steady dose of what you want, they're making money, you're getting what you want, and our communities are getting more and more divided. You may remember a couple years ago when it came out that the Facebook algorithm gave four times the response to someone hating something rather than liking it. Yeah. That didn't feel very good for our democracy. And, and and they adjusted it, but let's before we blame them completely. Mm-hmm. A lot of this comes on us. There was a study done after the twenty twenty election that said that a social media posting was twice as likely to be shared or liked or retweeted if it mentioned the the candidate's opponent rather than the candidate themselves. Yeah, right. So sure. that's we that's what we want, and uh, a negative message is not more like just more likely to be uh, have an impact on the viewer, but they're more likely to spread it, which of course is the whole point of social media. It's very rare that I will, well, I don't spend a lot of time on social media, but when I'm there, we miss you. I very rarely, I, I, I very rarely say what a thoughtful, nuanced and sophisticated yeah. posting that was. I'd like to share it with all of you. <laughs> Whether it's, get em, get em, get em, Lee. Yeah. It, it's every social media post is like an editorial cartoon to the max. Um, what are the I, I ways you the equation actually the equation I would draw yeah is graffiti yeah okay uh, but and some of them make me laugh them. full disclosure some of them are pretty funny but uh, yeah I I've, some- uh, I've tuned out a bunch of it for my health and well being but I, I'm on social and so somebody said to me well how can you have a good time on Twitter and I said my Twitter feed is about um, rock and roll theater and comic books so it's always a good time. Um, you, can, we, can we stop on that one for a second? Sure. Um, DC and Marvel, you never felt a compunction to choose? Oh, there. we're going to have to have a lunch just about this because, yeah, we're, we're going to have a, yeah, we're going to have a lunch just about this. And, and there are different, there are different cases to be made there. Um, because long before the movies, yeah. I, I have to tell you, I was a diehard Marvel guy. Uh, yeah, DC was beneath Okay, Me good. too, and, right. and lately I find I, I read more DC comics than Marvel lately. Okay, and let's agree that the the second uh, uh, that the sec- that the last Ant Man movie was a real disappointment. I haven't seen that yet. Um, my interest in Ant Man has shrunk. No pun intended. No, not at all. Uh, I didn't reach for that in the slightest. Uh, it was just a little pun for you. Um, what are the ways you've seen people really make political impact with social media? Like what, what's working? What, what do you think has, has risen above the rest? I say generally where, where social media can be incredibly valuable. And this is the flip side of what we we're just talking about. Mm-hmm. It's a terrific way of rallying and motivating and inspiring your base. There's not a lot of persuasion that goes on on social media. Very few undecided voters come to a conclusion about who to support based on their social media input. But it's a faster and it's a more precise and a much, much more effective way of organizing, of motivating and mobilizing a campaigns or an issue's 
you know, core group of supporters. And if it's a candidate or cause that's important to you, and there's several, then that can't help but to be a good thing. I, I tell my students, and I always warn them, I say, warning, 20th century old guy story coming. <laughs> I tell them about how when I was in college, my dad and my stepmom became big fans of then Senator Gary Hart mm-hmm. in his primary campaign against Walter Mondale. Me too. Such a relief not having to explain to people who Walter Mondale and Gary Hart are. <laughs> and I tell them what happened is you know, Gary Hart um, won the New Hampshire primary. My dad read about it in the newspaper the next day. About a week later, he got a fundraising appeal in the mail from the Hart campaign. About a week after that, he found his checkbook. About a week after that, he wrote the check. Mm-hmm. About a week after that, he found a stamp. <laughs> About a week after that, he put it in the mail. About a week after that, the envelope got to Denver. About a week after that, it was deposited in the bank. Mm-hmm. About a week after that, it cleared, at which point Walter Mondale was the Democratic nominee for president of the United States. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks to your dad. Yes. In, yeah. 20, in, in 2020, or 2024 for that matter, yeah. it takes, if you're already registered, less than six keystrokes to make that contribution and for the money to be immediately available. And that's the difference. That's a difference between a Gary Hart insurgent candidacy and even though he ultimately came up short of Bernie Sanders insurgent Mm -hmm. candidacy, he became a competitive force because social media allowed his supporters to engage much more quickly. Now, for those of your audience members who are Sanders supporters, as you know, it works for Donald Trump, too. Mm -hmm. Whether it's you know your cause or issue or someone else's, you can not only talk back to power in a way that wasn't available to us through most of the 19th and 20th centuries, but you can also talk horizontally and organize in a way that simply wasn't possible in a previous era. And that's a wonderful thing. Uh, about 10 years ago, something like that, I was a speaker, maybe not that long, at the... Um... National Planned Parenthood Conference in DC. And uh, I was I was saying to them, to your point, you know, Vice President Biden has sent me a text asking for three dollars. Who would I be if I didn't commit three dollars when the vice president texted me and asked me? Um, and they were and they were very much of the mindset of we know the ladies who lunch, and we're going to invite the ladies who lunch out to lunch, and they're each going to give us a check for fifty thousand dollars. And, you know, now this is a given, but at the time they were trying to wrap their mind around my idea that they should go ask a bunch of individual people for $3 each. And there are more of those individual people that winds up being more money. Um, and, you know, insert your own preferred cause there. And, and to your point, um, the level of connectivity and the instant, instantaneity of communication is radically reshaping the world. So my um, marketing agency here in Burbank, California is connected all over the globe, right? We have clients all across, across the U.S. We have business relationships and people we work with all over the globe all the time. And sometimes you have to figure out what time zone you're talking to. But other than that, um, there are no difficulties. And, and one of the members of our team went to Korea and while in Korea, attended every staff meeting here and, and worked with every client while being in Korea, so it, it's, not, it's not the same as the 1970s that we look back uh, at with not just so much love, but so much interest, because those were a peculiar time as well, the 1970s. Um, so well, it, uh, go ahead. And, and back to your, to your broader point, it really is easy to over-romanticize yeah. the past and recognizing that while we haven't been here before, We've been here before, and we found a way through. My my fear about romanticizing the past, and that's a great way to put it, is that it it says to me you've kind of given up on the future. That that was so great, we'll never get back there. And of course, we'll never get back there. We're going back would mean something catastrophic has happened. We need to find the best course forward, and it it pays to be present. What's going on now, and to look ahead and work toward the better future than to be stuck on the past. It just seems like um, the viewpoint of a retirement village to me. Precisely, which we're still a couple years away from 
succumbing to, correct? I'm never going to be in the retirement village, and I, I hope you're never there either. Uh, so I, I want to ask you before before I move on to the to the last couple things we're, that we're going to talk about. Um, do you think that the in the you know we're talking about the impact of social media and the Lincoln Project, which was a big um, anti-Trump campaign, really stood up a social media presence. I mean, they were, and they were clever about it. Even if you despised them, you had to admit they were incredibly clever. Do you think that the Lincoln Project had an impact in the 2020 presidential campaign? I think they had a marginal impact. Mm -hmm. Um, And I will tell you, friends of mine were involved in it. And it's saddened me to to see what's happened to it over the last couple of years. I think they had a minor impact. And I'll go back to something I was saying earlier about social media, um, the difference between um, motivating someone and persuading them. And this is something we talk about a lot in my classes. A successful campaign has to do two things simultaneously. They have to motivate their supporters and they have to persuade undecided voters to expand that base of supporters. And the really frustrating thing in any kind of advocacy effort is it's a zero sum game. Every minute I spend motivating my supporters is a minute that I'm driving those undecided voters in the other direction. Yeah. Every dollar that I spend persuading undecided voters is a day that is a dollar, well, means that my my core is a little bit less motivated. So you have to choose and you have and, and, and you have to balance. And I think what the Lincoln Project did very effectively is they served as an additional motivator uh, for the Biden base. I don't think many swing voters, undecided voters, made their decisions based on what the Lincoln Project said about Trump. Because mm-hmm. if you think about what motivation is in politics or anything else, motivation is reminding someone why they believe something they already believe. <laughs> you and I have a favorite restaurant. Mm-hmm. And if I want to motivate you to go there again, I'm going to remind you how much you like it mm-hmm. with a candidate. And so while the Lincoln Project presented its information in a very creative and compelling way, essentially what its job was to remind people who didn't like Trump why they didn't like Trump. Yeah. And they did it very effectively. In, in our remaining few minutes, I, Dan, I, I'd love to talk to you about the future. Um, so you work with a number of foundations and nonprofits. And, and no, we didn't have all the time for me to read every freaking credit you've got, which is impressive. <laughs> Um, what are what are foundations and nonprofits that you consult with? What are they most concerned with today? Um, the, the ones I work with mm-hmm. tend to focus on at least the areas with uh, you know, the departments or divisions I work with tend to have a very specific uh, interest toward a very specific outcome. Um, I'm not really interested in working with anyone, whether it's an organization or an individual who says, I want to change the world. Mm-hmm. the world's a big place it's a complicated place <laughs> and you can waste a lot of time and a lot of money saying look at us we're changing the world oh there go my plans yeah so <laughs> I, I look for specifics there's a there's a wonderful quote from the late steve jobs from his famous commencement speech at stanford university where he talked about putting a dent in the universe yep. and i love that quote because to me like i said changing the world is really difficult putting a dent in the universe means picking one thing drawing a little X, picking up a crowbar (laughs) and whacking away at it. And at the risk of sounding a bit esoteric, you know, the little seashells and balloons for a minute. Mm. Yeah. If everybody puts a dent in the universe, then collectively you change the world. So to me, those that do it have a very specific goal are the ones I try to work with and try to help. Just so you know, Lee, by the way, I had the opportunity several years back to meet Lorraine Powell jobs. Mm. Um, and had the opportunity to tell her how much her husband's speech and how much that quote had meant to me. And she left and she said, Dan, I don't know this, but I don't think that's what Steve meant by the quote at all. Oh, but if it works, but if it works for you, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so I felt an obligation to admit that to the, to the group. So when I worked, um, with, uh, Gates and Hewlett, it was not just on education, but on very specific areas of education policy. Mm. Um, when I've worked with other nonprofits, it's not just been on political reform, but on very, very specific changes. And I guess the one thing I'd offer to anyone who's looking for a place to make a difference 
is specificity is the answer. Um, gauzy makes me feel better. Yeah. But that one tiny little dent yeah. is what's going to make the difference. Yeah, it's good to, whether it's marketing or change or anything, it's good to do a baseline. Here's where we are right now. And then to set a goal, here's where we want to get to. And then monitor the change and report on the impact. Absolutely, 100%. Um, when, when, when you get people who say, I just want to do something, it, it's too nebulous to actually result in anything. I think you're really right about that. Um, so, you know, we're in an era of fast moving change. When you're serving as an advisor to groups like that, how do you help them navigate change or, or are they already aware of what's going on? And, and the reason they're calling you in is because you work in an area of change that interests them. Um, it's both just like in any other aspect of the world. Some mm -hmm. people understand the change that's happening. Some don't notice it. Some notice it, but don't know quite how to understand it. Mm -hmm. And I put myself in that middle, in that latter category. I wouldn't pretend for a minute to say that I understand how our society and world is changing, but I'm aware of it and I'm fascinated by it. And you know, there's a famous old quote, uh, you should never be the smartest person in any room that you're in. What I like about working with these organizations is there's never any danger of that. <laughs> and so while on one hand, I'm giving them advice to the best of my ability on navigating a changing landscape, I'm learning a ton from them too. And I feel like the minute you think, and I know you know this from your, not just your community work, but the business you have, Lee, the minute you think you know all the answers is the minute you start failing. And so being able to tap into other people's wisdom is a really great way for me to be able to learn from them. And then, of course, to take credit for what I took from them. I used to play a lot of racquetball. And my goal all the time was to play someone slightly better than me and get better and then move up to somebody new who was even slightly better, right? And if you're playing mm -hmm. someone worse than you, your game slips. So it's exactly what you're talking about. Smart people make you get smarter because you want to keep up. Um, pull out your crystal ball. Do you have any vision for what's in store for the U.S. in the next 10 years, politically or otherwise? Any trends we should be aware of? Anything that you really see coming? Um, I'll tell you what I see coming more than anything else. And there's there, there, there are a lot of things, and you have talked about this before, that make me optimistic. Um, I, I do see a period of economic growth. I feel like while there's still a significant concern about a recession, it does appear that we're navigating our way through these challenges in a fairly effective way. Wages are up, unemployment is down, and while inflation is higher than it should be, and there's an alarming rise in the level of protectionist instinct in, in both parties, on balance, it does appear that we are heading toward not a, a skyrocketing era of growth, but a low sustainable growth area era, mm -hmm. and that encourages me. Um, I see... In the last couple of years, um, a very, very reassuring public focus on the challenges of mental health. Now, we don't know how to fix these problems, but of course, the first steps towards fixing, fixing them is acknowledging them and talking about them publicly. And while certainly COVID wasn't the cause for a lot of the challenges that so many people we care about face, it brought our attention to these concerns that have existed for a long time. And even while we grope and stumble toward the answers. The fact that we're stumbling toward them rather than denying the problem yeah. is something I find tremendously reassuring for the health of society. Um, we're undergoing the, undergoing the greatest societal, not just the, the greatest economic, but also societal and cultural transformation right now since the Industrial Revolution. And I would argue that the transition from a manufacturing to a, tech, uh, to a technology based economy is just as important and just as disorienting as the turn from an agrarian to a manufacturing-based economy. And what we know when we look back at the Industrial Revolution, we saw alcoholism and drug abuse skyrocket. We saw suicide attempts skyrocket. The United States government, as you may remember, outlawed alcohol because mm -hmm. they thought that was the answer. 
So we're going through the same kind of transition now, but I feel like we're going through it much better, not perfectly by any means, maybe not even all that well, but we're at least we're aware that we're going through it and more conscious of our obligation to the other people in our communities who are having trouble dealing with the, that, that transition. All these things make me feel positive, make me feel optimistic about the future. Um, my biggest concern, ironically enough, is a point of growing very strong bipartisanship. Hmm. And that is the very rapidly growing animosity toward the People's Republic of China. Mm -hmm. I'm not defending China. I have great concerns and great worries and great suspicions about what their leaders are up to. But the fact that this is something that can bring, is bringing us together as a country um, is probably not the ideal way to achieve yeah. my partisanship. I prefer a cold war to a hot war, mm -hmm. but I don't relish the thought of a cold war. And I worry that that's where we're headed. Lastly, and I think we're probably over, the one thing that makes me most optimistic is I've been able to rearrange my life over the last few years that I get to spend three days a week in the company of absolutely incredible, extraordinary, brilliant young people. And for all sorts of reasons that we don't have time for today, I can't tell you how good I feel about leaving our challenges to the best of them. Just like we can pick out freaks on the other side of the political aisle, we can pick out slackers who are in their teens or early 20s. Mm -hmm. But I got to tell you, the best of them are really amazing. And us old folk ought to feel pretty good about the fact that they're uh, they're going to take over for us and do much better than we have. So uh, I'm going to add on to your, your list of dysfunctions uh, at, at the end of the agrarian age. Um, and, you know, there was a big wave of anarchy in the U.S., and, and now we're back into a wave of anarchy with, with shootings and such, which is pretty distressing. Um, and, and yeah, there's big societal change here going on and not everybody's handling it well. I, I want to, so my final question is about optimism. And, and so I want to give you another, another crack at this and I'll, I'll tell you why. So recently you and I had lunch and we found that we're both feeling very optimistic right now. And, you know, you said, how do you think it's going? And I said, I, I feel very optimistic. And you said, me too. And I said, well, Dan, why? And you said, no, you go first. So I, I had my list. I rolled out my laundry list of why I feel optimistic. And you said, well, gee, that's my list as well. It's the same list. So meanwhile, when you encounter people in real life um, around the, the US and the UK, those are the places I've been recently, you hear all sorts of um, negativity and sadness and fear and very few people are expressing the sort of optimism that you and I feel. Why do you feel that there's this penetrating sense of um, pessimism? And, and please tell us again why you're optimistic, because I'm telling you, Dan, people need to hear it. Okay. Well, if I left out something on my list that I just went through that we had <laughs> talked about over the last few weeks ago, I apologize and feel free to, to remind me. Um, but I do think that one of the reasons that it goes against most people's natural instincts, um, a couple of reasons. One, we've been through a really difficult time period. Mm. A once in a century pandemic is the kind of thing that can really discourage people. Mm. Um, and we're coming through it well. I mean, it's still lingering, but uh, if I, my own feeling is there was a lot greater loss of life than there needed to be. Mm -hmm. But on balance, society is young, once again heading in the right direction, even giving these lingering impacts. But I would say, what's the kind of thing that can make people pessimistic? Um, war, we've had those. Mm -hmm. Economic downturns, we've had those. Um, pestilence mm -hmm. uh, and disease, mm -hmm. we've had that. Um, all of these are pretty... Uh, understandable reinforcers for someone who often sees the glass as half empty rather than rather than half full. And so I can't get too upset with people mm -hmm. who are taking a little bit longer than you and I are to readjust to a almost post-COVID, um, almost post-war. Yeah, we can talk about Ukraine on our next Mm -hmm. uh, on our next program, 
it's easy not to see the progress. And one of the things I tell my students constantly, uh, not in class, but in one-on-one meetings, is I ask them if when they were kids, their parents would draw pencil marks on the door to mark their height mm-hmm. periodically. Because if you're a kid, you don't know that you're growing, but until you see those pencil marks. Yeah. And I always feel like we should have those kind of pencil marks for other aspects of our lives. Because people, you don't see that progress, whether it's on health, whether it's economically, whether it's in your personal life. And if there was a way of marking the, those progress points, I think the optimism that you and I feel would be shared on a much more regular basis. Well, the life of almost everybody on planet Earth right now is far better than it would have been during the Black Plague and I just, and and pre penicillin and 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 on and on, right? Um, but we have to keep preaching it. We have to keep reminding people. We and I love the pencil marks. We have to show people the pencil marks. Um, hey, Dan, this has been an absolute pleasure and and a great reminder that we need to have lunch again soon. And and I gotta find it. I gotta find another place to to book you in for a speech because you know you always bring the smarts and and you bring the uplift. So it's just been a real pleasure to have you here, and I thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks to your entire team. They've just been great in helping put this together, and I'm really grateful to them. I know you're the one that hogs all the glory, but for those of your members <laughs> of the audience who don't know it, there's some really phenomenal people behind the scenes making this work, and I'm I'm grateful both to you and to them. <laughs> Nice of you to say that is absolutely true. Um, I am the least capable person here, and uh, and they know that they know that to be true. So, uh, thanks again, Dan. Thanks so much for having me, Lee. I really enjoyed it, and I will look forward to that next lunch. Bring your comic books. Awesome. <laughs> yes, we must talk comic books. <laughs> See you soon. Thanks for listening. We're glad you came. That's What C Said is produced by Lisa Pham and engineered by Joe Curette. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please like and follow the show. Visit counterintuity.com to sign up and learn more.